to a new heart and a new mind and a new will and a new life. Thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's uh, stand and stretch and be back in 10 minutes, please. Us to a new heart and a new mind and a new will and a new life. Thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's uh, stand and stretch and be back in 10 minutes, please. Regenerated us to a new heart and a new mind and a new will and a new life. Thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's uh, stand and stretch and be back in 10 minutes, please. Regenerated us to a new heart and a new mind and a new will and a new life. Thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's uh, stand and stretch and be back in 10 minutes, please. Caused us to cast it aside, to count it as nothing, to count it as to be worthy to be trodden under our feet. But that new birth, that regeneration has altered our affections and altered our minds. It has altered our hearts. That work of the Spirit inside of us has given us a new birth, has made us a new creation. And so we have new insight, we have a new mind, we have a new heart. And the first response of that is to say, like the publican said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And to continue that attitude about ourselves and our righteousness and our merits throughout our lives. The text from which we will look at this reality of repentance is in the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. Now we could say that this is a psalm written by one who already was a child of God, who already had experienced the regenerating work of the Spirit, who already trusted in a coming Redeemer, who knew that there was one that was going to come out of his flesh that would sit on his throne forever. But we see in his heart when he is confronted with his sin after the terrible sins of adultery and murder, we see the operations of repentance that are characteristic at the very threshold of salvation when we are introduced into salvation by regeneration and that operates throughout our lives in this world. 
The psalmist wrote, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, may we sense the reality of what the psalmist is talking about in our very souls even now. And may we be brought to the place of rejoicing because of your righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now that is precisely what we have seen in the words of David in Psalm 51, isn't it? This is a person who was brought to a consciousness of his sin. He saw the horribleness of it, the devastating nature of it. He saw its tendency to destroy himself and to rob God of his glory and to desire to see God out of the picture. He saw that his sin was an assault upon the throne and the glory of God itself. But in seeing this, he does not completely despair. He despairs of hope in himself and despairs of any of his own righteousness. But he does not despair of God's infinite goodness, but casts himself upon the one whom he has offended so greatly and has a full purpose of and an endeavor after new obedience. When a person is born again, Two things immediately happen. If he is born again, these two things that happen, we distinguish by the words repentance and faith. 
These are things that go together. They cannot be separated, but they are distinguishable because they are different attitudes. They're different manifestations of what it means to see the kingdom of God. The fact that they are two different things is they are given two different kinds of definitions and discussions and operate in different ways as we see them discussed in scripture. But the fact that one implies the other is seen that many times the gospel is spoken of purely in terms of repentance and other times it's spoken of purely in terms of faith. When Peter was preaching at Pentecost and the, those under conviction asked him what they must do, he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. The message of John the Baptist was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself, when he began preaching the gospel, as the gospel writers call it, preached the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the disciples were commissioned after the, after the resurrection of Jesus, the commission, as Luke records it in Luke 24, is this. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So we see that repentance can be set forth as the sole thing that is needed for our proper response to the gospel. Repentance results in the forgiveness of sins. Repentance results in the embracing of God's mercy. Repentance is an essential aspect of the saving experience. We cannot have salvation without it. It is not optional. There have been some in recent discussions who have seen repentance as something that is not necessary. Repentance is sort of an addendum. Repentance is for those who want to be serious disciples. Repentance is for those who are willing to take up the cross and follow Christ. Repentance is for those who are willing to have Jesus as Lord, but faith is the only thing that is necessary for those who want salvation, who want forgiveness. Repentance is optional. If you want more rewards in heaven, you repent and you have Jesus as Lord, but repentance in itself does not constitute a necessary gospel reality. But I would submit that these words that we have read, these very few passages we have read that talk about this, set forth repentance as constituting the whole of the response that we have to the preached gospel message. It so implies by its very nature, if it is the result of the new birth, it so implies faith in Christ that it can be spoken of as the whole thing. So the first thing that we need to see about repentance is that it is essential in a saving response to the preached gospel. Now there are other passages of scripture that just as truly speak of faith or belief as the only thing that is necessary because true saving faith always involves repentance. When the Philippian jailer asked what he must do to be saved, the response was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In Romans 10, when Paul is speaking about what a saving response is, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so faith can be seen as singularly that response that gains for us the benefits of Christ's saving work. 
Well, these facts simply indicate to us that just like there are some passages of Scripture that speak about Jesus as a man, and we're not to doubt at all that he is a man, and those who want to isolate their discussion of the person of Christ, simply those that speak about his manhood and his suffering and his death and his being tired and his being sleepy and his growing in wisdom and stature and in favor and his needing the grace of God upon him, if you want to focus on just those and affirm Jesus is a man, we will not disagree with you. But if you want to say Jesus is only a man, then we must point to passages of Scripture that say he did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. We will point to those who say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will point to those times when the disciples acknowledged him as God and Thomas falls before him and calls him my Lord and my God and those passages that speak about in him dwelling the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. We would say yes, if you ha look at the person of Christ in this one single person, you see one who is God and man and the scriptures at some time must speak of him exclusively in his humanity and other times exclusively in his deity. But when you see that one person, that one face, you're seeing the God man. And when you're looking at the human response to the preaching of the gospel, sometimes it will be spoken of simply as repentance. Other times it will be spoken of simply as faith. Other times it will be spoken of as repentance and faith. And we must know that that which the Spirit of God produces in us by this operation, this mysterious, glorious operation of regeneration, that which he produces in us is the whole response that is necessary if we are to close with and unite with the work of Christ. And so what does repentance look like? What is this thing, repentance? Well, we know that there is a kind of repentance that is not saving repentance. We know there is a kind of sorrow that is not directed toward God because of our offense to him, but it is a sorrow for something else. David recognized this in another one of the penitential psalms, in Psalm 32, when he said, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. It is this kind of sorrow that the Apostle Paul also recognized in the book of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 7, where he is talking about the, the very earnest and eager response that the Corinthians had to a letter that he had written to them. But he describes a kind of sorrow that is not godly. He says, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There is a despair. There is a sorrow. There is a being crushed for sin that comes to those of the world. They have lost face. They have lost esteem. They have lost prestige. We hate to be hated. We want people to like us. And when we do something dishonest and it is exposed, it's crushing. We want to do what we can to regain favor. We're sorrowful. One of the Enron executives 
When it became revealed just how much money he had embezzled, he realized he could not walk down the street without people looking at him and being disgusted with him. How he had taken his position of trust and used it purely for personal advantage. Could not take the idea that he was so hated, that he would be so scorned, and he killed himself. That's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. But there is a sorrow that is even a greater sorrow that leads to life. Because there is an internal operation of the Spirit of God that produces genuine repentance that makes us see that the thing that is involved in our sin is not that we personally have lost face, that not we personally are now looked upon by others with suspicion and scorn, not that we have lost position, but we have offended God. Now David had offended Bathsheba, and David had murdered Uriah. And if we look at his psalm through worldly eyes, we might think, what are you saying against thee and thee only have I sinned? What do you think about Bathsheba? What do you think about Uriah? You sinned against them. But he violated the law of God. He took God's prerogative to himself. He committed adultery. He committed murder. These are God's laws. And when he sees his sin, that which is so distressing to him, that which presses him into the dust, is that he sinned against God, against thee. The only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are just when you judge me. He didn't blame God. He didn't say God is wrong to condemn me. God wouldn't do that to me. God is not the kind of God that condemns people. He said, no, if you condemn me, you're just. I've broken your law. And repentance, first of all, genuine repentance that comes as a result of regeneration is a view of sin that sees it against God in his law. Genuine repentance also sees that it is something that arises out of our nature. We do not think that it is just a sort of an accident that has come upon us. Oh, we were overtaken by external things and somehow the pressures of the crowd were too much for me and though really in my heart I didn't want to do that, I made a mistake and I fell into this pressure. Lord, forgive me. That's just a way of blaming it on society, blaming it on culture, blaming it on someone else. Oh, my motives were not really that, but I just I came into a weak moment and so I did something that was wrong. David didn't say, Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing out there. David didn't say, Lord, in your providence you gave me, I just had, I had so much success. I, I was so desirable to all the people. I had so much leisure because of the things, and I, I just had too much leisure. God, I, I'm sorry, I need to get busy and do some things. I'm sorry I fell like that. No, what does he say? What is the origin of my sin? Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. At the very core of my being, who I am as a person born off of Adam's vine is one that is in rebellion against you. Paul would say we are by nature children of wrath. 
There is something intrinsic to our very heart that rebels against God, and that is the source of all of those things that arise out of our mouth and in our actions. It is from the heart that the, the issues of life proceed. And genuine repentance recognizes that and does not blame God for it, but knows that it is the moral predisposition that I have and that I nurse and that I act in accordance with. Genuine repentance also casts aside all merits as well as demerits. It sees no righteousness in itself. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, after he went through all of those things, he said, were gained to me. I count all of these things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And I count all of them but loss and count them but refuse that I may gain Christ Accounting of refuse, anything that anyone else would think, oh, what a wonderful thing, how marvelous it is that you have all of these advantages, how much talent you have. Oh, certainly it's a great and wonderful thing that you would come to God. You can benefit the kingdom so much by your talents. Anyone who thinks they come to the kingdom because they're going to benefit the kingdom by their talents has not yet found what their sin is and is not repentant. The Apostle Paul says, those things were gained to me, I count but dung that I may gain Christ. You cannot have the righteousness of Christ and cling to your supposed merits. But by the same token, nor can you have the righteousness of Christ and cling to your demerits. Think that they go beyond the ability of Christ to forgive you. The Apostle Paul just as clearly says, and as David says here, I'm guilty of blood guiltiness. Make me righteous. Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I hated Christ and killed people because of him. I was a murderer. I persecuted the church. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I'm vile. But the grace of God was sufficient. No sin you have committed will go beyond the merits and excellency of Jesus Christ. And if you're genuinely repentant and you see your sin before the God who has sent his beloved son, you recognize that he has done exactly what was appropriate and has not done more than was needed, but that all he has done will cover your sin. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. When you're brought to repentance, neither your merits nor your demerits will keep you from Christ. If you're genuinely repentant, there will be a different attitude in you. Paul described this attitude in 2 Corinthians 7 when he was talking about the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, uh, Behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong." In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. This is an effect of the heart. You become zealous for right. You become alarmed at that which is wrong. You do not casually deal with any sin, but you see that it is something that led the Son of God to die on the cross. You are zealous 
for that which is right. You have longing to be freed from even suspicion of being unfaithful to Christ. Zealous for these things. And so it makes a difference in your attitude. It makes a difference in your actions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul is talking about how fearful he is that he might come to the Corinthians and find them not in a state of repentance. Verse 20, he says, For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be, to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be, and listen to these, strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Repentance will reach to the heart of these internal selfish issues. Paul was afraid he would find that they had not escaped those things. But look at also. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. True repentance reaches to attitudes and true repentance reaches to actions. Another thing that we see in true repentance very quickly is that there is continuity in it. The book of 1 John talks about the necessity of continually recognizing our sin. It is a mark of the person who is saved that he recognizes that his sin continually needs the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. If we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We recognize that. We continue in repentance. It is something that happens at the threshold of salvation that makes a radical cleavage with sin, but then it continues as we understand the depths and the corruption that still exists within our heart, and we recognize the continued need for this cleansing power of the blood of Christ. And finally, we've seen something about its being an essential component of the saving experience. We've seen something about its character. And finally, I want us to just look at its relationship to Christ. What does the psalmist in Psalm 51 think about his coming with this repentant attitude to God? Does he have hope and confidence that God will forgive him? Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. You see, repentance of a worldly kind leads to death. Repentance that is brought about by the Spirit of God shows us Christ and draws us to Christ. We have confidence in the loving kindness of God. It has been expressed in a way greater than we can ever imagine when he gave us Jesus Christ. And when we are repentant as a result of regeneration, we see Christ. We go to him. We say, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. When we're born again and we see the kingdom of God, the first reflex of the soul is to turn from 
sin, to repent. But embedded within that repentance already is faith in Christ. It honors Christ by taking our sin to him. I lay my sin on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. But I do not come with glee, delighting that I have sin to lay on him. For by the same token, I seek to honor Christ by turning from my sin, by despising it with horror, by realizing the thought that we afflicted him for our transgressions. He was bruised for our peace. He was cut off. He bore our iniquity in his own body on the tree. And I want to do nothing at all that could in any sense be a part of that that adds grief and pain and sorrow to my Savior. So I bring my sin to him gladly. I shrink from sin because I want no thought that I have added more to the sorrow of the soul of my Savior. May God grant us an understanding of repentance and renew it in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you <clears throat> that your Spirit does bring us to mourn our sin. Ah, oh, mine iniquity, crimson has been, infinite, infinite, sin upon sin, sin of not loving thee, Sin of not serving thee, infinite sin. And yet we have an infinitely glorious Savior to whom we can bring that sin. Thank you, dear Father. Amen. <clears throat>